The story, of course, could be told from any number of angles, um, from any number of perspectives. And as I've reflected this week on our story together, it has seemed best to me to try to tell our story from your point of view. Because the truth of the matter is, um, there's never a conversation that we have about Holy Trinity or what God's up to in our midst that's not told from your point of view. Our, our constant care, our constant vision is how can we do what we do in ways that are truly edifying, in ways that actually make a difference to your, your spiritual journey and what God's doing in your life. In the six years that we've been together, we've had dozens, if not scores, if not uh, hundreds of comments like this. I came to Holy Trinity having given up on church for various reasons. Or I came to Holy Trinity having given up on the hope of any real or healthy walk with God. Or I came to Holy Trinity not wanting to really risk relationship or to be hurt again in the context of a church. Or some of you said to us, well, I was coming seeking a breather, a quiet place, and I didn't think one existed. Others have said to us, I didn't want to be scolded or preached at, yet I wanted to think more deeply. Others have said, I needed to stop just being an audience and find some participation. That is to say, I don't know that there's anybody in this room, I could be, well, that can't be true. There's got to be a small minority of us who have not had over the last five or 10 years a de-churched phase, <laughs> or at least a phase when we were deeply tempted uh, to be de-churched. And this is one of the reasons that I, I chose this passage this morning. I, I chose it from the message because I think this is one of the places where Peterson so helpfully captures, I think, the spirit of what Jesus was trying to say. And I think we find ourselves in this passage, if you'll look at it, uh, around the second sentence there, third sentence, it says, some though held back, not sure about worship, which simply means ascribing the highest worth to something or somebody. So maybe you can see yourself in this as you came to Holy Trinity some, though, held back, not sure about worship, not sure about risking themselves totally. And this gets right to the heart of something that we're trying to make ourselves aware of as Christians in 2015 and, and in America and in Orange County. And that is, I think, many of us are learning that we are not merely thinking beings, and that a part of what has left us down, uh, let us down in our church experience was a kind of fill-in-the-blank discipleship that said, you know, look this scripture verse up, for God so loved the blank that he gave his only begotten blank, you know, and, and if we just fill those words in, that somehow thinking rightly about a passage would be transformative. Now, I would, of course, prefer, and I assume you would too, right thinking over wrong thinking. It's just that what I think we're all coming to grips with in the day that we live in especially, mere right thinking, if we're going to be intellectually honest, we just have to say has not normally been transformative. 
because we are fundamentally desiring beings. We are fundamentally loving beings, and we live in an age in which discovering your truest desire and pursuing it is the highest form of being human. Now, one could question that, but let's just assume it for the sake of discussion here, because this gets right to the notion about being sure about what it is that we actually worship. Because it appears to me the way life actually works is that we either give ourselves up to various addictions or diversions, or we give ourselves over to followership of Jesus, to discipleship, and to the spiritual practices associated with discipleship. And it's fascinating. I actually, I don't know how I didn't know these, know this after all these words, but I actually didn't know, just stumbled across it this week, that the Latin root for the word fanatic is the word temple. And, and or a source of inspiration from God. And the notion is, is that human beings by our interwiring are fanatics. We cannot not worship. We are by nature worshipful beings. Therefore, the only choice left to us is what to worship and then to engage in the practices of that sort of worship. And so, now having been honest about ourselves, let's ask and answer the question, well, how does God respond to our honest journey? Those of us who weren't sure about church, weren't sure about God, weren't sure about risking relationship again, and note these words. I have a lot of favorite words in this passage, but here's two of them. Jesus undeterred. Looked right in your heart. He saw what was true that you might not even have been willing to say how much you were really giving up on church, how much you were really tempted to give up on him, how much you were really tempted to give up on any sort of healthy Christian relationship. He looked right into the deepest parts of our heart and was completely undeterred. And this gets it all the times you've heard me or Dennis or Mike or whoever's teaching. So, so many times you've heard us refer to covenant love or steadfast love or, you know, God's everlasting mercy. That's what's at the heart of this. I mean, this was not the first time God Almighty start, stared into the face of his people who were not sure. I mean, just read the Old Testament, right? over and over and over again, but Jesus undeterred gave us his steadfast love that said something like this, my father and I are up to something, it's going to find its fulfillment, and you're caught up in that. And so Jesus is undeterred because he sits in this story that is completely true and completely going to be fulfilled, and that gives him then the ability to give us grace, which is simply the positive action of God towards you. Yeah, it includes the forgiveness of your sins, but it cannot be reduced to it. It is the positive action of God. So I picture Jesus maybe thinking something like this. Despite the facts looking otherwise, Jesus knew that he and we are living in a universe that created, having been created and superintended by God, is a perfectly good universe, and it makes perfect sense. Are you feeling me here? Jesus is not knocked off by what's real in your heart or your head. The universe still makes perfect sense. It's, it's still going to come to its completed end. 
And so because of this, looking again at your passage, Jesus goes right ahead and gives his charge, which is to say, hey, human beings, here's your purpose, and, and this is the goal of your life. Go out and train everyone you meet. I want you to note that word train. Because what does that imply? It implies a manner of being, a way, again, that cannot be reduced to the mere um, coming to know bits of theology. Again, knowing those bits of theology are included in this, but training in any aspect of humanity cannot be reduced to mere cognition. It's whole life, and it's embodied. And Jesus gets at this in that phrase, train them in this way of life. Well, right when Debbie and I were um, kind of entering our de-churched period um, in the late 90s, um, in 1998, I believe, is the year that Dallas Willard's The Divine Conspiracy came out. I don't know how many times I've read that book. It's easily the most marked up book I've ever owned in my life. But I remember reading it as a, as a pastor, longtime pastor. It's the only job I've ever had. I often jokingly say I've never had a real job. I've just, seriously, I've been a pastor since I was 19 years old. I've never really had a real job. This is all I've done, 40 years. So I'm, I'm reading it with that lens. And I come across this sentence uh, about two-thirds through the end of the book. Dallas writes, does the gospel that you teach and preach have at its most organic impact the creating of people who follow Jesus? And I had to say no. I had to honestly review my life and say, no, not really. We, we've prepared people to go to heaven when they die, and we've prepared people to give sort of a minimalist apologetics that's essentially rooted around one theory of the atonement. Yeah, we've done that. But can I honestly say that most people who hear me give their life to Christ in the way that Jesus is talking about here, where they begin to train themselves as apprentices to him, taking on his way of life, I just had to say, no, basically not. Basically, basically Christians in my world had not become selfless. They'd not had taken on as their first sense of themselves, I'm a servant that my story is not my race, my gender, my ethnicity, my place, my economic status. My story is I'm an ambassador of the kingdom of God. I just had to be honest and say, no, in my preaching, not so much. And Dallas then envisions this sign in front of a church. He says, I've never driven by a church and seen a sign that said something like this. We teach everybody to do as Jesus taught was best. And again, I just had to admit that I don't think I'd ever met a Christian who said, I'm determined to learn to love my enemies. I'm not exaggerating. But I'd known hundreds of thousands of Christians who had justified hating their spouse, hating someone on church staff, always had a rationale for it. But I don't think I'd ever met anybody who said, I'm going to do what it takes to get real about learning to love my enemies. Or if I'm slapped on one cheek to turn the other. Or if I'm compulsed by someone to do something that I don't want to do, I'm going to find a way to serve them from my heart. I don't know that I'd ever met anybody like that. And so it, it, it put me on a path of thinking, is there a, like a way of doing church that could help us like 
honestly move through those things such that we did become essentially ambassadors of God's kingdom and fundamentally otherly in our orientation. And this is why I keep saying, how do we do this now? Doing this, the challenges of doing this now are completely different than the challenges of doing this when I was a young church planner in the 70s and totally different than doing it in the fourth century or the second century. I'll just give you one example. Um, uh, Shane Hips wrote a book called Flickering Pixels where he's kind of assessing what technology is doing to us. And one of the things he says is, the human psyche isn't designed to withstand the full gravity of planetary suffering. Did you catch that? The human psyche is not designed to withstand the full gravity of planetary suffering. Numbness and exhaustion are natural reactions. Feeling helpless and hopeless is nearly inevitable. The heart can only stretch so far so many times before it's worn thin and wrung dry. Over time, if unchecked, the numbness, I love this phrase, of empathy at a distance. If over time, empathy at a distance, if left unchecked, undermines our ability to extend genuine compassion. What happens is that the pain of the world experienced through our screens keeps us from understanding and alleviating the pain we encounter in our daily lives. Lots of you would know the name Marshall McLuhan, and one of his kind of well-known aphorisms is, we shape our tools, and afterwards our tools shape us. And we just have to get real. Again, I've said it over and over again. I'm not bashing technology. I have every form of basic technology everybody else has. I, I got a MacBook, and I got an iPhone 6, and I got everything. I'm a basic guy. But I, I, we would be being completely, again, intellectually dishonest if we're not willing to ask the questions, okay, we've shaped our tools. How are our tools shaping us? What does it mean to be a disciple of Jesus in 2015, not 1979? not 345 AD, today, now, with the world as it presently is and as it's coming to us through our screens. How do we actually stay engaged with that as followers of Jesus? So what happens is that today we're awash in a flood of unrelated facts that show up with equal value on our screens. I mean, if we were in a classroom right now, I would stop and say, get out your phone and go to Yahoo or something and just open a news feed And just look at the string of 50 or 100 unrelated facts. The Pope stumbles while boarding a plane. Dozens killed in a bombing. The proper inflation of a football. The Speaker of the House resigns. A September snowstorm breaks an Alaskan record. You just go on and on and on and on. What makes sense of that? And the honest answer is, for most people, nothing. Nothing. And so hopelessness and helplessness and and, um, apathy and impotence and medicating pain begins to rule most human life. There is, we we lose track of any sort of meta-narrative, any sort of overarching story that can stitch those things together. And so we just go from thing to thing to thing and it can happen faster and faster now because of our tools. 
And we become increasingly disconnected, not only from what's real, but from, what, from each other. And get this, from what's most real in you. Because this stuff is literally changing our brain pathways and making it increasingly different for, uh, difficult for any human being to actually be present to anything. And so as I think about our work together the next five or 10 or 15 or 20 years, it, would, it has to include something like this. How do we recalibrate our psyche so that we can reignite any sort of genuine compassion? How do we give ourselves to the kind of knowledge that's the result of, please hear these two words, continuous engagement? Like, we've got this stuff going on all around us. How, we're not going to be able to step out of that. None of you are going to throw away your iPhones or your iPads or your MacBooks or whatever. You're not going to throw them away. I would never ask you to. That's ridiculous. So given that they're going to stay there and do this to us all day, every day, how are we going to find something that goes like this that makes sense of all that? Look, look me in the eye. You're not capable of dealing with this. Your present moral character, spiritual development is not capable of dealing with it. Neither is mine. I don't know how many times a week now I look at my phone and go, what, what am I supposed to do about this? <laughs> I'm serious. I, I just, how, I can't be in any more pain. I don't have it in me. I already worked very hard. I do everything I know to be right, to do right. I try my very best to be present to everybody in my life with genuine love and compassion and trying to serve people. It's my whole sense of myself, but my phone is overwhelming that. I can't do it. I don't know where to stop. Which one should I focus on? Is it the pain I see from one of you who texts the office? Is it global pain? Where do I stop? Where do I give my attention? What can be a thread that somehow holds that stuff together? And you are only going to find that through a life of continuous engagement with Jesus and the Bible and church and prayer and whatever spiritual practice you can think of that would enable a thread to be created in your life. And this is why um, when Debbie and I were kind of over our de-churched period and we, we came back to church, so to speak, is we had to find a way of making the practices of church something that fueled our discipleship to Jesus. So that, so that this was the vision for me, um, you know, having been um, not an elite athlete, but just under an elite athlete, and um, having been even less of a musician, I... I, I, I wanted a kind of Christianity that I knew athletes had. Like, I mean, I had played everything, you know, racquetball, tennis, and the other day I was thinking of tennis, I guess, because of the U.S. Open. Do you know how hard it is to unthinkingly sort of run around a backhand and hit it down the, you know, the edge of the court and just get it right there? Not too much pace, but enough pace. Not too much height, but enough height. Do you know how hard that is to do? It is extraordinarily hard. And they do it without thinking. It's embodied in them. 
But what if we could get there? What if we gave ourselves to training for a way of life the way an athlete trains to a way of performance? Or a musician gets to the place where they have this gentle, focused, humble concentration where they're just feeling the music. So come on, do you want to be honest with me here this morning? How are you going to feel the music in that? How are you going to be instinctually know that that's the right shot and I know how to hit it? This is, I would say, the, the fundamental taproot vision of what we're trying to do here together. We're trying to give ourselves to Jesus as his apprentices for the sake of others. Make me say it in a sentence. There you go. I'm trying to give myself to Jesus as his apprentice, his student, so that you experience me as for your good. And so does the lady at the rental car checkout counter. And so does the doorman at the hotel. So does the taxi cab ride. They experience me as for their good. That is the essential vision. But to do that, we have to immerse ourselves. And this is what Jesus gets at here when he talks about baptism. It, it, you know, this, especially the way Peterson gets it here, it alerts us to the fact that baptism is not mostly about water. It's about immersing ourselves in a triune reality. That is to say, we immerse ourselves in the story so that we're undeterred in the same way Jesus immersed in the story could look at what was real with his first friends and be undeterred. So then he goes on to say to them, now here's what I want you to do as I'm sending you out immersed in this story, immersed in this imagination. I want you to instruct the people you meet in the practice of all I've commanded you. And this is why I wrote the book, Giving Church Another Chance, The Spiritual Practices of Church, is that I now know, after a long time of doing this, that practices, it's practices over time, that quietly, usually unconsciously, either form or malform us. They create our inner habits and they shape our desires, creating either virtue or corruption in us. So why does Beth lead us through a heart of thanksgiving? Why, why would we create a liturgy that did that? Because you know what my often evening prayers are? After a hard day, you know, where I'm not sure I always did right, made the right decisions, thought the right thoughts, you know, after just a long day, my days are very, very full. Often at the end of the day, the only thing I can really do is like just review my day with thankfulness. It's like the only thing I have intellectual and emotional and spiritual energy to do. And I may even actually get out my iPhone, just open my Google Calendar, and just be thankful for the five meetings, the six phone calls, the preparation, whatever I was doing that day. And just be thankful. Just learning to train off the spot, learning to try to cultivate some sort of virtue so that on the spot I can respond in grace, wisdom, wisdom, love out of thanksgiving. With the knowledge, lastly, we'll end this plane, that Jesus said, I'll be with you as you do this day after day, right up to the end of the age. Here's the good news. The resurrection does not primarily mean Jesus won. It doesn't mean like he's the New England Patriots and, uh, you know, the Devils, whoever they beat last year, I forget. That's not what it means. It doesn't just mean, yeah, Jesus won. It's certainly not what Jesus is talking about here. The good news of the resurrection is, is that Jesus is alive right now. 
Get out your, do it right now if you want, I don't care. Get out your phone. Look at your MSN or Yahoo or whatever news feed. Look at it. Look at those 50 or 100 unrelated things and know that Jesus is presently alive right now on this earth, leading the most interesting life imaginable. And he invites you into following him and being your apprentice in the real life of 2015 as it presents itself to us. He's with us in our reality. As we here at Holy Trinity, I, I said in the letter I sent to you this week about uh, our giving, that this is what I actually think is true. Theologically orthodox, gospel-oriented, spirit-filled, kingdom-oriented, formationally-focused churches are really rare. And we're trying to be one of them. And I think they're not only rare, but they're especially needed at this point in America and in Orange County history. So as I think a good way for us to respond to this, to what Jesus is saying here in the, what's you know, normally known as the Great Commission, is to ask yourself this morning, take a, just a brief quiet moment here, and ask yourself, what do you love enough what do you desire and worship enough that you don't even have to think about it? It comes to you like Serena Williams just hitting a forehand winner. What do you love enough? Keep it real here, just you and God. What do you love enough? Desire and worship enough that it's automatic. For the words of our mouths, the meditations of our hearts, and the thoughts of our minds, and the uses of our technological devices, all of our supposed free choices are really simply an extension of this unseen reality. You are not actually free. You are governed by what you love enough, desire enough, and worship enough that you don't even have to think about it.